0: Good evening, everyone. It's a really, really great pleasure to uh, be able to introduce Lorna Goodison. I think I can say, uh, without any doubt, um, as far as I know, it's the only occasion we've invited a a writer from Jamaica who has brought the snow uh, with her to to Durham. We were hoping for a a bit of Caribbean warmth, but we'll certainly get that in Lorna's reading tonight. It really is a a great pleasure um, to... Welcome, Lorna, from, from Jamaica, but uh, via the United States and Canada. Uh, and to have here uh, at the Book Festival a, a writer who is truly world class a poet and a painter and a short story writer. Lorna Goodison has won numerous international awards, including the Commonwealth Poetry Prize for the Americas. Uh, and now, uh, to add to that impressive list of honours, the Durham Book Festival uh, Laureate. And this is, in fact, the first time that we've appointed a festival laureate from outside the UK. And it's a a great privilege for the book festival uh, and for the university to host a writer of Lorna's uh, international repute and distinction. Lorna was born in Jamaica. Uh, She studied at art school in Jamaica uh, and then in New York. She's taught at the University of Toronto, uh, and now teaches at the University of Michigan. And her brilliant, sensuous use of color and shape and texture are evident, I think, all the way through her her books. From uh, her first published book, which I remember very well, a book I like to go back to, Tamarind season. And I remember buying some Tamarind as a a result of that, just just to try it. Uh, through later books like Hardee's, Travelling Mercies, Controlling the Silver. She's published in the UK with Carcanet, one of the very best uh, of UK uh, publishers. And I'm glad to say that her book of new and selected poems titled Golden Grove uh, is on sale here tonight along with some of her other books. Lorna uh, is also the author of a beautifully written memoir, uh, from Harvey River, A Memoir uh, of My Mother and Her People. Though the uh, the current title, I believe, is um, Memoir of M- My Mother and Her, her Island. It's a, b- a book I read with great pleasure. Uh, made all the more pleasing when I discovered that Lorna's great-grandfather, uh, a notorious character called George O'Brien Wilson, was an Irishman. I always suspected Lorna was Irish. Um, And it was good to to have that confirmed. There's certainly a lot of Celtic magic uh, in her work. When the African-Caribbean and European and American influences meet and mingle in her work, the result is a a poetry of extraordinary power and potency. I sometimes think I hear the joyous notes of Bob Marley and Miles Davis running through the work, but I'm, I'm very impressionable. But in nearly all of Lorna's work, there's an undertow of, of sadness and loss, personal and historical, but it's a sadness redeemed by the sheer beauty and musicality of her language, by the tenderness of her regard for other people's suffering and by her openness to the possibility of the miraculous. Her work recovers the forgotten rhythms of ballads and stories and chants and spells, hymns and prayers but it also speaks eloquently and urgently to the needs of the moment. It offers us heart ease and soul sustenance. I'd like you to give the very warmest welcome, please, to our Durham Book Festival Laureate, Lorna Goodison.
1: My great-grandmother was a guinea woman, wide eyes turning the corners of her face could see behind her, her cheeks dusted with a fine rash of jet bead warts that itched when the rain set up. My great-grandmother's waistline was the span of a headman's hand, slender and tall like a cane stalk with a guinea woman's antelope quick walk, and when she paused her gaze would look to see, her profile fine like some obverse impression on a guinea coin from royal memory. It seems her fate was anchored in that unfathomable sea, for great-grandmother caught the eye of a sailor whose ship sailed without him from Lucy Harbor. Great-grandmother's royal scent of cinnamon and scallions drew the sailor up the Straits of Africa, and the evidence is my blue-eyed grandmother, the first mulatto, taken into Bakra's household and covered with his name and they forbade great-grandmother's Guinea woman presence. They washed away her scent of cinnamon and scallions, they controlled the child's antelope walk, and they called her uprisings rebellions. But great-grandmother, I see your features blood dark appearing in the children of each new breeding, and the high yellow-brown is darkening down. Listen, my children, it's your great-grandmother's turn. Good evening, thank you so much, so much, so much for (laughs) having me here. (laughs) I am so honored I cannot tell you I could keep going on but I guess I should just read thank you Stephen for that beautiful introduction and just thank you for just can I just keep saying thank you thank you thank you thank you tonight I'm going to be reading from some poems from some old poems and some very new poems this poem is called ode to the watchman As we exit from the old city before day, we sight the night watchman at his post. Evidence of his vigilance against nocturnal furies red in his eyeballs, but he did not bow though, no, not him. It is right to thank him. All praise to you, O beneficent watchman, for keeping guard over us while we slept. Blessed be your eyelids which did not blink even once in solidarity with those lowered shutters, window blinds, and jealousies. You remained awake, ever alert, armed, with only your nightstick, rod, and staff. Your aged cross mongrel dog rampant at your side, even as the smoke pennant blown from your rough-cut, filterless, hand-rolled cigarettes flew out full staff. For pushing against that grease-stained tarpaulin of despair and not allowing it to befoul us during our needed night rest, For keeping at bay restless, rolling calves trampling down from those sleep hills, their busted old rusty chains rattling to shake, the firm resolve of our small hearts. Thanks, watchy, for keeping them from breaking and entering our little children's dreams. And now, kind watchman, you go home to sleep. You who did not seize and beat the beloved as she roamed the streets composing the song of Solomon. Go home now, good watchman. The last hot rush of caffeine pins that pricked your blood awake has been rained from your thermos flask. Your bread back of night lunch cast upon the keep wake fire in your belly. Cease that anti-lullaby you keen to maintain wake for the sun is here to take your place. Um, My husband assures me, I don't need to explain that, but when I was growing up in Jamaica, we never had sophisticated um, security systems. What we had was an old guy with an old dog and an old stick. And he would just sit there and just watch over us all night. So I thought it was time somebody wrote an ode to that man. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be reading some poems from a book tentatively titled Supplying Salt and Light, which is due out next, early next year. And the, this poem is called To Make Various Sorts of Black. There's a brilliant book called *Il Libro dell'Arte* by a, an Italian painter called Cennino Dandrea Cennini. It's the most generous book I've ever seen, in that he tells artists how to do every single thing, including how to make colors. And this poem, is, in this poem, he tells you how to make the color black. And um, yeah, I took that and I ran with it. So it's called to make various forms of black, various sorts of black. According to the Craftsman's Handbook, Chapter 16, El Libro del Arte by Cennino d'Andrea Cennini, who tells us there are several kinds of black colors. First, there is a black derived from soft black stone. It is a fat color, not hard at heart, more a stone unctioned. Then there is a black which is made from vine twigs, twigs which chose to abide on the true vine offering up their bodies at the last to be burned. Then quenched and worked up, they can live again as twig of the vine black. Not a fat, more of a lean color, favored alike by vine dressers and artists. There's also a black that is made from burnt shells, markers of the Atlantic's graves. Black of scorched earth, of tarred stones, of peach, of twisted trees that bore strange fruit. And then there is a black that is a source of light from a lamp full of oil, such as any thoughtful guest, waiting for the bride or groom who cometh will have. A lamp you light and place underneath, not a bushel, but a good clean everyday dish that is fit for baking. Now bring the little flame of the lamp up to the the undersurface of the earthenware dish. See a distance of two or three fingers away. And the smoke which emits from that small flame will struggle up and strike at clay. Now strike till it crowds or collects in a mess or a mass. Now wait. Wait a while, please. Before you sweep this color, now sable velvet soot. Off onto any old paper or consign it to shadows, mere outlines, or backgrounds. Observe. It does not need to be worked up nor ground. It is just perfect as it is. Refill the lamp, Cheninio says. As many times as the flame burns low, refill it. The next set of poems are inspired by a trip my lovely husband Ted and I made to Spain and Portugal last year. And this poem is called Reporting Back to Queen Isabella. My mother was a wonderful teacher of children. And when I was small, she told me a story that I'm sure you've all heard this, that when, Queen, when Columbus rep- went back to report to Queen Isabella about his first voyage, two things. He, she said to him, well, what does Jamaica look like? And he said, it's the, f- the fairest isle that I has ever beheld. And then in order to show her what it looks like, he crumpled up a sheet of parchment and opened it, because Jamaica is very mountainous. So this is called reporting back to Queen Isabella. Also, I was told that Queen, Queen, Queen Isabella's Spanish set the standard for her nation's language. When, thus, when Don Cristobal returned to a hero's welcome, his caravels corked with treasures of the new world, he presented his findings, told of his great adventures to Queen Isabella, whose speech set the gold standard for her nation's language. And when he came to our home, he described it so. The fairest isle that eyes ever beheld and then he balled up a big sheet of parchment, unclenched, and let it fall off a flat surface before it landed at her feet. There we were, massifs, high mountain ranges, expansive plains, deep valleys, one he'd christened for the Queen of Spain, overabundance of wood, over 100 rivers, food and fat pastures for Spanish men and cattle, and yes, your majesty, there were some people. I'm, I'm a big fan of the work of El Greco. I, I studied art, and I paint, I'm a sort of a painter you now. So this poem is called You Should Go to Toledo. And I, I was having supper one night, and there's, I kept saying, I was speaking about my, my, my admiration for El Greco, and somebody at the table kept saying, well, you should go to Toledo, you should go to Toledo. So you should go to Toledo. I'd stared hard at the tongues of flame over the heads of the disciples, till I felt a dry heat catch fire in my fontanelle. El Grec, the docent in the Prado call him, a stranger in Spain all his days. What is it you like about him, the one who came from the dark night inquires? So I say this. The way his figures struggle and stretch till they pass the mandatory seven heads must be about grasp exceeding reach. The insistent knocking at my temples, the new sideways of open, the new sideways of seeing that open as I approach his door-sized canvases, and his storm at sea, all dolorous blue, his bottle-green washing to chartreuse, his maroon stains of dried ox blood, the verdigree sheen of the black coat, white lace foaming at the throat and wrist of a knight with one hand to his chest. How I cling to the hem of the garment of La Trinidad's broad beam angel, who resembles my own mother when she was young, strong, and healthy body able to ease crucified cross, crucified Christ of the cross. And he who separated from the shades and sat at table with us in a late night place, redolent with olive oil and bacalao, says then, you should go to Toledo. One of my favorite pieces of music in the whole world is the Concerto de Arangues by Rodrigo. And um, this is called New Sketches of Spain 1. This train I board at La Latina will stop next in Arangues, where Rodrigo lived. As a boy, he lost his sight. A friend became his eyes. One day he was blessed with a fine-looking wife. His duende created major disturbances in his head. Still, he composed the concerto oranges for Spanish guitar, but no one told that to Miles Davis. The Concerto Arangues is gardens of aromatic camellias, plaintive, exquisite bird song, sudden exuberant fountains a small child's death. These things I have read. Train from La Latina. Take me to Oranges. I must pay respect due to Rodrigo for myself. This is called Bookmarks for Eyes. Enter the old puppeteer. He creaks the stairs to the upper room where we sit at late dinner in an inn, where a bronze-plumed bird perches on top, of the cold water tap in the ladies' toilet, turn the water on, it trills like it's in a birdbath. That bird should be released over the aqueducts, perhaps to swell the high chorus of swallows in the gilded choir loft of the great cathedral. The old puppeteer comes. He has reduced his craft to two from three dimensions. He stel- sells stiff paper figures with black beads glued on, still damp and bulging as eyes. Bookmarks, he says. They will keep reading for you long after you close your eyes. So we buy a purple one and pray. It will not stain our sincere tries, a clean, clear prose. What do you want from me? All I desired was a quiet life. Grafting poems onto roses, singing home at home near blue mountains. What am I searching for outside this known world? Why am I a a of fashion Columbus, gone off map, and here there be dragons? It's a poem about being in, in Lisbon and in, in Portugal, and this young man came up to us and he was selling beads and he was from Africa and he told us about how we stole away from Senegal and came to Spain and then he crossed over into Lisbon. Olisboa. Sen- I'm not going to try and pronounce it as it should be, but it's San <laughs> Vicente. is that right? Patron saint of Lisbon stands in the Largo das Portas do Sol, and cradles a muddle boat with mariners and two ravens. He oversees the harbor from the square of the sun's gate. He guards Alfama's steep cobble streets. His scrolled marble robes have gone deep off-white. Once a ship docked off the Gambia coast and took into its hold, unknown to all, aboard a small stowaway, a boy barnacle, a juvenile remora, fastened onto Bart, and slipped off ship in Spain. This boy turned man, crossed over into Portugal, addresses Monica and me as my mothers. He sells us bead necklaces he's strung himself, amber and an ink stone so blue, it's all but black. Same as his own skin is, but in reverse. He gives us leather bracelets, says, thank you mothers for talking to me. Says he's going to buy supper for his children and their mother. She, like him, is Senegalese. He becomes furtive when a marked car rounds the corner. Whispers, policia. San Vicente, Tent your stone palm. Shelter the ravens. This is called, O oh Africans, Pla- oh Africans in the Plazas of Madrid. And I think it's self-explanatory. Oh Africans in the Plazas of Madrid. O Africans, I saw you in the plazas of Madrid with your ethnic jewelry and bootleg DVDs set down on flying blankets rigged with strings you pull when shrill sirens swarm the air. Pull and blankets pocket into pouches you fling over shoulder as you leg it. O Africans, you follow the scent of salt into boats, ferrying you for a fee. Or you lodged in the maw of liners, dark humanity released into metropoles where you may believe you are rejoining Africa's assets, her wealth dragged away in galleons and caravels, help to erect cities where you sing mourners, you flog handbags, bracelets, illegal DVDs, and fleet of foot flee from police. O oh, Africans, there are reports of new ships of the desert, paneled, wheeled vessels freighted with dark men disgorged from corked holding cells swallowed then as living, breathing contraband, ejected again to walk the sand trail of tears back to from whence they came. Oh Africans, official word is, these are only rumors. Um, we were going by a shop and I saw the most wonderful uh, saint sitting in the window, she was about a a rule and a half-high, and she, her, her, she, her underwear was painted on, but she had no clothes on. And she was looking really kind of embarrassed, this little wooden figure sitting there in the window. And I, I wish I could have bought it, but, but it was been. Anyway, to, you know, I'm, I'm put a dress on her because she really looked embarrassed. La Casa Dos Dorados, the shop of saintly relics, you called it, where she was on display in her painted-on underwear and the clerk dissembled when pressed to identify the icon of a black woman, one ruler and a half high, limbs hinged so she sat upright on a ladder back chair, knees together, feet sheathed in ankle boots, straight-laced, sweet-faced, embarrassed to be seen, not properly dressed in a shop window in the Alfama district. You insist you need to know who she really is. You wait till the owner is summoned, his best guest is, she is Our Lady of Montserrat, Black Madonna. What could have brought her to this? Why has she stripped off her clothes to expose her thin white tempera, chemise and bloomers? Our Lady's home is on a Barcelona mountain. Attempts to bring her to the plains failed. Believers make pilgrimage to her shrine of miracles, yet she's come down to us this day. You are in the valley of the shadow, the dark. The dark lady has come to accompany you through this place on the path where consolations withdraw. Do like her, yield up all outer. Be still, let it pass. It's the last poem from that series. It's called Spinning in the Head. When you cross the narrow strait of Gibraltar, make your way to Tangier. There are places there you will find friends. Go no further, go no further. Caution spinning in the head. Name for spinning in the head, vertigo. Word made famous by Terra Meister Hitchcock. But the spinning in the head only makes you want to buy a honey colored fez. Bathe clean and dress yourself in the liquid pleated robes of the turners. And with left hand turned down to earth, right cupped, Head set to the side and feet bare, you will whirl for days. Do, oh, do for me what I cannot do for myself. Okay, this is a poem called Hope Gardens, and um, there's a place in uh, some gardens in Jamaica called Hope Gardens, and... If anybody here, I'm not going to try to insult anybody who is a post-colonial scholar, I'll just be very quick. And I'll just say, um, one of the things that I've, I I was, okay, I'll just be very, very precise, very, very direct. I was in a lecture once and this lady was lecturing about botanical gardens in the Caribbean and she was revealing all these heinous colonial plots behind these gardens. And I just thought, I used to go to those gardens, and nobody knew about those plots. They were just kind of just having a nice time in the gardens, you know, so. All right, okay. Hope Gardens. you right to immortalize the long gone Sunday afternoons, light years away by route of slow silver, Chichi Omnibus. Crossroads, Old Hope, Hope Road. You in Oregon this Sunday school dress, set to slip off good shoes and socks, and dash across the green in Hope Gardens. As the military band is in zouave uniforms, sounded brass um umpapa instruments. Seated now in a seminar, you're perplexed as this post-colonial scholar unearths plot after heinous imperial plot buried behind our botanical gardens. And you think, pity the people never knew this, as we pose for brownie camera-captured photographs by flowering trees or, oh joy, showed off in our wedding dandan by the lily pond, laid down ourselves careless in beds of canna lilies, lost in daydreams of owning our own places, with lawns the square of a handkerchief, we the ignorant, the uneducated, unaware that the roses we assumed bloomed just a full eye were representative of English lady beauty. Unenlightened we were, so we just picked them on the sly, They give us token to the love we got lost in the maze with quick steal a kiss. And this colonial design was, well, it was nowhere inside our mind. And even if, and so what. As long as they flung wide those two-leaved wrought iron double gates, there we'd be. Gentlemen and ladies, all human beings, come in order to draw strength for the weak from our own Hope Gardens. I'm not proud of this poem, but I, the circumstances behind this poem, but I, I guess because I feel so ashamed I had to write about it. I went to a very unusual school in Jamaica. I, won't go, I spoke about it last night, so I won't go on hear about it. But um, I, one day we got to school and there was a big headline in the, in, the, in the Gleaner newspaper that said that Jamaica, there was a lady who was now Jamaica's first Christian martyr, that she had been killed in the Congo, and that Jamaica now had a Christian martyr. And um, it turned out that this poor lady was the sister of our history teacher. Serious, true, true, this is the truth. So everybody, it was a girl's school, so everybody became very pious for about a week. <laughs> and um, we just felt really special because our history teacher's sister was now a Christian martyr. And then something really awful happened. She turned up alive. <laughs> and, um, it just got worse because then she came to see us and we were not happy to see her. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> and I feel badly about this, I'm, I'm embarrassed and ashamed. But anyway, but it's called Our First Christian Martyr. Our First Christian Martyr ran the banner headline, news flash. she was related to our history teacher. In morning assembly at St. Hugh's school, we sung hymns in praise of missionaries, who bear the gospel to heathen lands, hail the braves who risk their life for Jesus' word in far areas of darkness for to win dark souls. Scenes be pictured in our inward eyes. Her eyes raised to heaven, a hymn winging defiant from her lips, savages dragging her to a boiling pot, sound track of savage drums sound across a jungle where Tarzan was Lord Grey Smoke rising from Torch Mission House. But before term was over, she turned up alive, saved by natives who spirited her way down paths as swarmed with armed insurgents, down the Congo to the Atlantic, where she was delivered on a ship booking out of Africa. On the day she appeared to show herself to us, we did not rejoice to see her, she who deprived us of our first Christian martyr. I'm a big fan of the, the, the Bengali poet Rabindranath Tagore and um, I, I used to, in one of my, I've had a fairly checkered past, not, not anything to, well, okay, let me just say I used to work on a bookmobile, That's, let's, and it was, it was wonderful going all over rural Jamaica to give books to children, it was, it was, I, I love that job. But you, you you went for long stretches of time in silence, so sometimes I'd read and, once on the bookmobile, I founded Jitanjali, you know, Rabindranath Tagore's that beautiful little book of poetry. So this is called Tagore on the Bookmobile. And if it is not my portion to meet thee in this my life, then let me ever feel that I have missed thy sight. Belly full of bo- books enough to sustain, let me start again. Belly full of books enough to sustain you on your journey, all of a hundred miles in a day, the far outpost of your father's parish. To small schoolhouses where beleng beleng the handheld bell, when great giving bookmobile toiled into view, school children heralding its coming. Bookmobile come, the bookmobile come. Jitanjali, you found between a child's garden of verses and the Oxford book of modern verse, lyrics that shivered your head top off, watered your gaze on the clear red landscape. What hard love was this Tagore spoke of? pitiless force able to gouge unhealable gash in the heart, like mined out bauxite quarries the machine heaved past. Flesh could not sustain such feelings as the poet spawned, you would fall, but come to see how all echoed the friend's name, all of it beloved surrogate. At day's end, wending home past the barnyard flags, you would feel yourself stream out towards him, and all because of Tagore of Bengal." I'm um, going past the bookmobile again. It's, you know, one of the things I thought about is that people, a lot of people in Jamaica, especially some older people, read deeply from the, the, the canon, you know, the English canon. And one of the books that a lot of Jamaicans know, older Jamaicans, is the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So, this guy was that the town drunk, and is the town drunk reciting Omar Khayyam. The drunk already, as a bookmobile passes, calls out, A flask of wine, a book of verse, and thou beside me there in the wilderness. Then he salaams, folds his south stealth in half, and somehow his old rude boy hat stays fixed, does not fall off, even as the white rum wafts and weaves around him. Near tangible shade can almost be seen arising from a flat sided Appleton rum flask. This liquor in flames, harsh ways overproof spirit has, torture of buildings, cut of heartstrings, carry wide of a poor man with a little knowledge. Omar, you might want to explain something to this liquor bibber, charmed so by your quatrains carried over by Fitzgerald. You would be remiss if you did not clarify whether all that wine the tent maker imbibed was pressed hard from grapes grown on earth vines or spirit. How is my time? Oh, okay, eight fifteen. I stop. Okay. I'm a big fan. I mean, I am a big fan of. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> I'm a big fan, obviously of. of, of I, I, one of the things I want my poems to sound like—that was my ambition. I don't know if I succeeded. I wanted my poems to sound like those great women blues singers, like Billie Holiday and Dinah Washington, and you know, people like that. I really, really did. So there was a long time when I, you know, I spent my time just sort of really listening a lot to these blues singers. And then one day it occurred to me that I, if I wanted a voice, I'd better get to getting one for myself. Um, so this is called "In the Blue Boarding House." And the epigraph is from a quotation by Thomas Merton. And I'm a big fan of of Thomas Merton. He, he He was really a hip priest. I mean, if anybody, he was an extraordinary man. But he says, he said, many poets are not poets for the same reason that some religious men and women are not saints. They never succeed in being themselves. They never get around to being the particular poet or the particular monk or nun. They're intended to be by God. They never become the man or woman or the artist who is called for by all the circumstances of their life. They waste their years in vain efforts to be some other poet or some other saint. So my poem is called In the Blue Boarding House. Take it as I tell you, every surface there was a shade from baby to midnight in that big old rented house, totally blue. Even the wind-up Smith alarm clock, which clockwork went off at six, when she'd rouse us with our signature reveille, good morning, heartache, here we go again, round and round the gramophone. New boarders with soft shoe past her bedroom door, converse in hushed tones, pretend to avert their eyes from last night's still life, laid careless out on the tiles. Slipper satin evening dress pooled to glaze meltdown. lace garter belt hooked silk stockings. Stiletto heels, white flower pristine by a bag with bloody syringe. Now we who hadn't signed long leases were savvy enough not to touch our stuff. We got high on scald black coffee and sung her praises in friend-up notes. Last night's show was fabulous, your very best yet. I am your biggest fan. If you could not make rent, she'd make you run errands, do her laundry, press her dresses, cook her meals. She took her supper hot to burn excess off her voice box. High yellow, she craved greens. Set of steamed spinach, even the food I like most is half blue. Life here was one long low residency program for ones aspiring to live Somebody else's life done lived. Miss Lady owned the cream gardenia. You, no flower. Then raised high the roof beams, the beloved came flying, penance that spelled, time to abandon these premises. I seized the day and booked, booked, ended my stay. Dropped blue keys into once red mailbox, now in the go. After bring her a pot of Blue Mountain coffee, I split. And I wrote her a left-handed note. Not my life, this. We, Ted and I live in British Columbia. And when we, we know, obviously I, 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 you know, I'm from Jamaica, so there's some things I'd not, never seen. And so when we moved out to British Columbia, I said, I have a confession to make, my darling. I am very f- scared of bears. I hear that there are bears in Canada, and I am—I have this real horror that a bear will, you know, attack me. And he said to me, "No, there are no bears where we're going, love. No bears, none." So one evening we're driving along and I'm coming in from Gibson's, and just up ahead, a bear comes out of the bush. <laughs> and. It was his place because he was in no hurry. He just kind of, you know, shambolically, easily crossed the road, and then he just, what was wonderful is that he just disappeared into this bank of trees. He never broke a branch or anything. It it was just amazing. And I felt Ted beside me saying, you do not see a bear. (laughs) And I said, yes, I see a bear. (laughs) So this is the bear. There he was, great bear of my dreams crossing the road just outside Gibsons in no particular hurry, like a long-legged pigeon-toed man with a gay presidential. Oh, he kind of looked like President Obama. He walked like President Obama. <laughs> there he was, great bear of my dreams, crossing the road just outside Gibsons in no particular hurry, like a long-legged pigeon-toed man with a gay presidential, bopping, cool. Bear just ambled, slightly shambolic, dipped in front of the car. My heart leapt and leapt, and you, love, were hoping I had not seen it. I did, but I wasn't as scared as I imagined I'd be upon my first bear sighting. Ursa, down from the evening sky, slipped through the bank of pine trees, never broke even one branch. For him, trees parted. Last night, the bear was dancing in a ring with our children. I called to you, Papa, come quick. The kids aren't aware. There's a bear they're cavorting with but they seemed comically happy out there and the bear trail a across Half Moon Bay. And now the bear enters our living room where a lamp shaped like a horse waits to be unpacked. I show it with a damp dishcloth. It shows no sign of being one bit perturbed and I'm worried that the bear might be thinking of moving in and that he will sit in our armchairs and that he will eat up all our porridge. Okay, one last poem, 50. I thought I'd read this poem because it's called Charlie Chaplin at Golden Clouds. And, you know, we all love Charlie Chaplin for, you know, he was just a wonderful man, but he once paid a visit to Jamaica and he stayed at a place called Golden Clouds. And he was very happy there and he said it was paradise. He said time stood still there for him. Um, So this The poem is called Charlie Chaplin at Golden Clouds. Charlie Chaplin declared Oracabesa is a a town, and the Golden Clouds is a part of Golden Eye. That's where Ian Fleming lived and where he wrote all the James Bond series. So, Golden Clouds is just near to Golden Eye. Charlie Chaplin declared Oracabesa paradise. 101 years ago, on this day, time stood still there for him. At golden clouds, he smiled and checked in for a time. The bag of crosses carried from childhood. Bag of abandonment and want that made him identify with the poor little man. Baggy pants, coat too tight. Cast off shoes so outsized, he wore them right to left. Cane and a bowler hat. Wicked man's mock mustache. Jesus, what a job responsibility for making this world laugh. Chaplin looked out silently from his room window, framing the Caribbean Sea, and saw rowing hard, big fishermen who cannot swim. He went for a walk and watched banana men who looked like tramps, cultivating acres of hillside land, the inheritors of Earth, about their business, not caring who the great man was, except maybe to offer him a jelly coconut. The aura cabesa sun can be hot, or like the chambermaid, recite a psalm as she turned down his clean sheets, that he will pass the night in peace to rise up come morning, rested.
0: not usual to have encores at poetry readings, uh, only at very special poetry readings. Occasionally, we, we, we have encores. One of the uh, great traditions that we've established um, with the Book Festival laureates is, is to, to ask the uh, writer to uh, write a, a piece, a commissioned um, poem, um, hopefully something to, to do with Durham. Um, or the, or the northeast. I I don't know what uh, what Lorna has, but I'm uh, I'm hoping she'll um, she, she'll explain this to you. And um, I'd like to invite her back now to read this year's uh, commissioned poem from the Book Festival Laureate.
1: Okay, may I apologise in advance for this poem. I I really am. I. Okay, I, I did my best, but it's not finished. But I thought about, I, I read a lot about St. Cuthbert, and I looked at the, the, the marvelous, that wonderful carving. And I went to bed one night and I woke up and I thought about one of these, you know, this of useless information that's lodged in, in my mind. And I remember, my husband says I should try to forget some of these things, but I, I, a long, long time ago I read and I, I revisited where it's, Stephen helped me to find it, it's in Second Samuel, um, chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, I really what I've always been, uh, an incident, you know, there are many incidents like in the Old Testament in particular, which are very puzzling. And in that incident, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and um, it was shaking, and some poor man, you know, somebody's nodding, put forth his hand to steady it, and he was struck dead. And I just thought that was just not good. And all I read, you know, all the reading I did about St. Cuthbert and the people carrying him to find a place to lay his blessed bones, everything about him spoke of the antithesis of an act like that, that he was kind, that he was a repairer of the breach, that he loved the poor, that he was a wonderful man. So this is my poem. I don't think it's finished, but um, here goes. Should you stumble and attempt to steady yourself by holding onto this bear, fear not, no hand of vengeance will strike you down. For daring to touch what is holiest, no thunderclap or lightning will flare upon your unintended overreach. For we bear the body of Cuthbert, Good Shepherd, caretaker of the flock, partial to the pretty ridiculous duck, repairer of what is out of joint, nothing living, alien to him, and even unto hoar hairs we will carry. Bear his body away from the fierce, the fierce of this world, whose lot is of this world. We shoulder brother wonder worker, servant leader, source of salt and light. We come in search of sheltered place to dispense the healing active in his sweet unspoiled flesh. We walk good so stones refused by builders raise up of their own accord and level our path. Through the rough places made plain, through valleys exalted we come. Should you stumble and need to right yourself? Stretch forth your hand. Here is help.
0: I'd like to uh, thank Lorna for uh, bringing such uh, warmth and uh, colour to to Durham on this cold evening. I, I always find that Uh, lines of Lorna's uh, verse, just um, stay with me and take them away like treasure. And one one of those lines tonight, uh, lyrics that shivered the head top off. I hope I've remembered that one correctly. Many of her lines send a a shiver through me, certainly a shiver down my spine. Um, So I'd like to um, thank Lorna for a, a reading that was and chanting and moving and uplifting. Thanks for lifting our hearts and, and spirits, Lana. That was really wonderful reading. Thank you.